So for today's episode, um, we're going to be answering more listener questions. We recently put out a post to everyone in the followers of Faded Out group on Facebook asking for more listener questions. Um, We did like three listener question episodes a while back. It was a month or two ago, I think. And it was really great to have everybody so engaged and so much more information has been coming out that we wanted to give everybody that opportunity again. So that's the direction we've decided to go for this week. And today I am joined by Jessica Fritz Aguirre again. Hi. And also we have Joe Aguirre because everybody has been <laughs> missing him so Fan much. Favorite Joe. I'm back. So that's what we're going to be going with today, answering a lot of listener questions. Um, we've been teasing, doing an episode about the photos of Doreen. Um, we are still going to do that. That is coming up. But today we are going to delve back into the things that you want to know and that you want us to elaborate more on. This is season two, episode 23 of Faded Out. I'm Sarah Dimio. Right out of the gate, the first question, you know, I just mentioned this, Joe is back and everybody wanted to know, is Joe okay? Yes, Joe has not gone anywhere, of course. Joe is still here. We just, um, (laughs) Jess and I decided that for the past few episodes, being that it was such a delicate subject matter, talking about sexual abuse, Uh, Maybe it was better if we just, Jess and I just discussed that stuff. Yeah, maybe there's, it's better if there's not a loud man yelling about it. I am a loud man, and I definitely (laughs) would have ruined those episodes. You guys did a great job with that, uh, and I am okay, and I'm glad to be back here today. Uh, Because there's some things I think that that need to be discussed. Yeah, I know that there's some stuff that Joe's been... (laughs) Wanting to wanting to delve into as well. We put out a post, like I mentioned at the top, uh, to the followers of Faded Out group asking for more questions. Um, so here's one of the first ones that we were asked in that post. Um, this is from a listener by the name of Carol. Uh, she asks, does Mark have brothers and sisters and are his parents still alive? Um, the short answer is yes. Mark does have brothers and sisters. Um, His parents are not still alive. His mother, Lori, who we've mentioned a lot on this show, died several years ago. She, uh, you know, she was in her 80s. uh, So she passed away, I I think, about a decade ago. Not much is known about Mark's father, though. We don't really, we haven't gathered a lot of information in that sense. Yeah, I don't think we know much about him at all. One thing I I, I do think bears um, mention on the podcast is when Lori died, her obituary says that she has uh, three grandchildren. Yes, I noticed this too when you showed it to me, Jess. Uh, it says that she uh, leaves behind three grandchildren, Paul, Sarah, and David. And yep, it has no mention. no mention whatsoever of Doreen who ostensibly had run away at that point and was alive, according to the Vincent family, or I guess the Mark um, word on the case. Yeah, don't know anything about his dad. He does have uh, two sisters and two brothers. One of them hung up on me when I first called, which I don't, you know, I don't think you can really say anything bad about that. I think I kind of took him off guard, but I never did get a call back. Um, I guess understandable. 
Uh, he does have a second brother who was out in California at the time that Teresa Lyon said Mark went out to visit during the time that he was uh, supposed to be missing. And then there are two sisters who have not responded to my requests to discuss the case, but I'm going to keep working. Something that Donna and Debbie and Carol mentioned to us, too, is that uh, Doreen wasn't particularly close with Mark's side of the family. And that's something that they've been telling us from the very beginning, because we had talked from the very beginning about us wanting to get in touch with Mark's siblings and his extended family. And their response to us was always, well, she was never close to them, though. Right, but they were close to Mark, or at least grew up with Mark, so there might be some uh, you know, nuggets of information there mm-hmm. for our character study. I want to move on to this next question that was asked by Mary. When Mark had his health scare in 2003 and almost came to impart information on Doreen's disappearance, why was that information never disclosed to the maternal side of the family. Well, for one thing, that information wasn't disclosed to anybody. Um, The police received that information, and after that whole almost confession or almost imparting of information never happened, they pretty much never spoke of it again. Yeah, I think it... um is important to know that the Wallingford police really hasn't shared anything with the family. Uh, Stephanie has a story about late November, uh, I believe it was 2005 or 2006, where she was in Pennsylvania and on the news they were reporting the discovery of some bones that they had found of a missing little girl. Later turned out to not be Doreen, but they reported it on the news as potentially being Doreen's bones. And Stephanie called up the Wallingford Police Department. Now, these are her words. I, I, I can't say if this is completely accurate, but Stephanie says that the Wallingford Police told her, um, because she called and said, what if my mother saw these? You're not calling to give us any warning that Doreen might have been found? And they said, that's the media. We have no control over the way the media reports it. And then Stephanie says they told her, you should be glad that this case is still open in the first place. Um one newspaper report says there was a tip in 2014 that went nowhere. I asked the maternal family about that. They said they never heard anything about that. I mean, they just they haven't gotten any updates at all. It seems about that time, 2003, that that was the end of any investigation yeah. by the police. The only the only other times you mentioned that that they obviously they cross referenced uh, uh, her dental records or DNA at that point in 2011. Yeah, and then there was when uh, Lieutenant DeMeo uh, reorganized the file, putting it in a chronological order. That's 2011. Been, that has been the extent of the work from 2003 until we came into the picture as far as what the Wallingford Police have done on this case on this open active investigation well, as they refer it, to it because what i want to interject here is that um for them to say something like that to stephanie that that you should be happy that this case is still open well remember too any case that is not solved is open um a case is not closed until it's come to a resolution like literally that literally they close the case so any case that remains cold or remains unsolved it is an open case but it does not mean that anybody is investigating it though right also they're not doing you any favors 
you know, that, that suggestion, you're lucky it's still open. Well, mm -hmm. you didn't solve it, guys. So, of course, it's open. Only the ones you solve are closed. And right. you're not even close on this one. So, you, you probably owe the family at least that much. Right. The courtesy of a call on the rare occasion where somebody pokes their head into the file. And I don't want to malign the Wallingford Police Department with no reason. I mean, who knows? Maybe what Stephanie says she heard was not the case, but I've sat with Stephanie on multiple occasions. I trust her. And the family has told us numerous times that they were ignored, that their calls weren't returned. It just fits the pattern of behavior that we've heard about. So That we've experienced ourselves right. with those same police officers who we've been trying to assist. <laughs> That's all we've been trying to do from the get-go here is to hand them the evidence, the all this stuff that we have found. You know, you brought that up in the last episode, Sarah. We've got all this evidence. This is where we formed our theories, and we've been sharing this with the police. We told the police there's some people that they should talk to, who we talked to, who really gave us some information that it, it didn't seem like the police had. There's other people who said they'd never spoken to the police. Right, like certain people who raise our hackles have never been spoken to by the police. Yes. Mm -hmm. So this seemed easy enough. You said you don't want to malign the police, and we don't. We we extended an olive branch and, and sat down and agreed amongst all of us that we were working on the same goal, and then they weren't. Well, let me correct that. I don't want to malign the police without, you know, appropriate and, you know, specific proof. Um, I think everyone who's been on the followers page knows this, but I'll let the, the whole audience know. Um, they have refused our request um, for the FOIA uh, materials. They had two choices. They could mediate or they could go straight to a hearing. Um, I thought that the mediation was going to be something more formal. They just skipped it. Uh, they didn't communicate that to me. They communicated that to the commission, to the information commission. And they said, we're absolutely not willing to negotiate. We are going to a hearing. So that's been scheduled for um, August. Joe and I, you and I had talked about this before. Wouldn't it have been better and kept it sort of more out of the limelight? I guess better for public relations purposes as far as the police are concerned, wouldn't it have been better to just sit down with us and say, okay, there are a few things that we can give you. We can't give you a lot, but here's a few. And I think that would have placated me a bit more than nope, nothing, because you'll remember under the statute, they have to show me that there's a, it's an open case, which it is, but B that they do have information and that it's prejudicial to a law enforcement action. Now, Someone on one of the Facebook groups said to me the other day, you don't get anything if it's an open investigation, but that's not the case. They have to, A, prove that it's relevant to um, an open law enforcement action, and B, um, they have to, um, you know, I think there's also separate public interest in knowing why the police have had this open for 31 years without solving it, but at the same time exhibiting some behavior that we find to be questionable. I asked for one very specific document. That was all I asked for. I, I offered to sign a non-disclosure agreement. And uh, I was told they would get back to me in a few days uh, on this deal I had offered them. Never heard a word again. Tell us what that document is. I'm not going to say. It doesn't matter. It does. It, it doesn't. It really doesn't matter. It, 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 it was one document. And, and again, this idea, you're going to publish it on the podcast. No. I told them that. A hundred times. That's not the plan. It was for the investigation. The one that they're not necessarily actively pursuing. 
we're trying to do that, that document would have been very helpful in what I was trying to do. So I'll I, leave it at that. I just want to address one thing, too, is that something uh, one of the criticisms we've had to deal with along the way is that um, and this is often a defense that the police use, too, is that, um, you know, it's it's inappropriate to share information in an open case. You know, it could hinder any investigation. But something that we've been very cognizant of from the very beginning is that there is no law or rule anywhere that says that private citizens cannot, as long as all the information you have was obtained legally, cannot take it upon themselves to investigate a case. You know, people often use the word armchair detectives, but some people prefer the word citizen detectives, which I kind of prefer that label a little bit better myself, too. Armchair detectives sort of implies that you're just kind of like, you know, in the comfort of your own home. Yeah, just kind of for the ride. Yeah, yeah, and just kind of like, you know, doing your web sleuthing and things like that. That, like, a citizen detective to me is a little bit more what we're doing of actually collecting physical documents and talking to people firsthand. And it gets back to what I was talking about in the last episode of how we often get faced with a lot of criticism um, for, you know, for our conjecture or, you know, what, what people tell us is conjecture, but it's, I'm going to repeat this again. It's when you, have physical documents and physical evidence and you're talking to witnesses firsthand who have never spoken to the police, many of them, all these things come together and they become more than theories and more than conjecture. It's a circumstance at that point. Once you have all that in the realm of all the puzzle pieces that fit together, that is your your circle of things you're working with. That's how investigations are built. And that's how it like any professional does it too. You put pieces of the puzzle together. And that's exactly what we've been doing for all of this time too. Mm -hmm. And I think it bears repeating. And I've said this to the family members multiple times, just because we're podcasters and we're broadcasting a product doesn't mean that if we got our hands on say the smoking gun through the police or if we were able to coordinate with the police as to what really happened, that doesn't mean that we're going to run and, and put it on the air. Because listen, we've done so much work, that we would not compromise an investigation for ratings. That's ridiculous. Uh, you guys can take it or leave it depending on you know what you've learned about the three of us from just listening. But I'm not about just like, oh yeah, I got this hot information. I'm going to just just spoil the investigation. Ha ha, you, you, you'll never get Mark now or whoever. That's not the case. Um, we attempted, and I think the police are aware of this. We're very steeped in this case. We know a lot. We know a lot of detail. We know people's characters. We can fit in pieces really well. And we were sort of offering, this is going to sound, you know, maybe a little arrogant, but we're going to offer that look on it to the police because we have so much information and, and, you know, context that I think that really would have helped him and that offer was rejected. So uh, sign an, an NDA would have been a helpful thing for them, but I, I guess not. I've been doing this media stuff for 22 years. Mm -hmm. I am the co-owner of the Clovercrest Media Group. If you think for one second, I would allow anybody to go on the air with conjecture and speculation without evidence, you clearly haven't done your research. And 
I know a lot of people who haven't done their research. Yeah. Um, and it and it's not hard. Uh, there was obviously a recent Record Journal article that came out about this podcast. It was uh, lazily written. It was not well-researched. It brought forth no new information. It seemed more of a hit piece against me, uh, a, a bit player on this show. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's what I am. Uh, a big part of the reason I'm on this show is because I was tasked with one assignment. Call Mark Vincent. Correct. And I did. Mm-hmm. And we formed some kind of a weird relationship for several months. That's it. Why that article was about me is beyond me. I think up, I'm the least yeah. important person in this room right now. It, you know, and you're right, because it brought up stuff about you that probably never should have been mentioned because it had nothing to do with what we were doing. Um, there could have been a whole section on Mark. Right. Would have been great because there would have been a lot to write. Here's what really bothered me about that article was that, you know, because there was a lot of stuff in there about me as well. Um, Jessica Fritz Aguirre even cried during an episode. I did cry. It was the day that we were looking at the pictures of Doreen mm-hmm. that Paul had given us that was he was kind enough to share with us. Um, you know, there were some suggestions that maybe I shouldn't have used a recording that someone ultimately agreed to knowing exactly what it was going to be used for and even use the words to be used on the podcast. You know, if, if I was, if I was sloppy in the beginning during my first interview, I'll own that. But I don't think the record journal laying out a draft complaint for someone to follow, um, is, is the way to go. What bothered me about that piece and Joe, this is what I said to you when we read it together the morning it came out was that piece was about us as podcasters. It was nothing about Doreen. There was no new information I provided the journalist with multiple bombshells that we've learned about in the case that were not shared. Also, I was very disappointed to see when I picked up a physical, well, five physical copies of the newspaper after we read it online, above the fold, because it was front page news, good job guys, was a reprint of that 2001 article that we drew some information from. Underneath the fold, in smaller print, was podcast draws interest. Now. I believe if the record journal knew what they had, they might want to do some actual research with new information and new facts, including what we've brought to the table and print that. I don't understand why you're relying on an article from almost two decades ago. That's exactly what we've been telling you. That information is poorly researched. Well, not that article, but there's a lot in it that's inaccurate. And it should be about, here's the new information about where Doreen is. Go get it. Well, how about patting themselves on the back for writing five articles in two years about a missing person when your coverage area is three towns? And there was a miss, like literally the only missing person in those three towns. And you're patting yourself on the back for five factually inaccurate articles about the story. Mm-hmm. I didn't see, I saw our journalistic integrity questioned. And interesting, I think, I think they should have probably looked in the mirror at, at the work that they, they did and they continue to do. I wasn't surprised by the article. It was everything I assumed it was going to be. Uh, and it was to the standard and quality I assumed it would be. And we've talked about this before, too. I, if someone wants to bring a defamation lawsuit against us, you know, truth is an <laughs> ultimate defense to defamation. So, uh, Joe, I don't think you've ever said 
Mark Vincent killed his daughter. I don't or, know that. You don't know that. Mark Vincent is a manipulator. Well, that's an opinion. I've got a, that's right. not an, that's not an opinion. Well, it, it's an opinion based on a bunch of info. I mean, but again, it's not sure, something from that, witness statements, firsthand right. witness accounts of him being a manipulator. We've heard it from, I would say no less than 20 people have talked about Mark being a manipulator. So when I say yes. Mark's a manipulator, I'm getting that based on the evidence. When I called Mark the prime suspect, I literally got that from the Wallingford police right. who told me he's the prime suspect. So again, I believe that was also misquoted in the article. Yes. I told her exactly why I called him prime suspect. That's what the police called. We him. have information that he has manipulated. I'm just going to do a quick short list. Donna, Debbie, Carol, Jane, Doreen, Teresa, Jimmy, Paul, I mean, Frank I could, IML. Frank IML. I could go on the and on. The list goes on and on. But if you... The people who are currently working at Teen Challenge who have reached out and talked about the kind of person he is. Sharon? Sharon. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a huge, obviously. Obvi but like it, people who are suggesting online that, you know, a defamation claim could be brought against us. The way that it works is, since truth is a defense, there would be a trial within a trial. Mark would have to come and prove, because we're defending ourselves with the truth... Mark would have to come and prove that what we are saying is a lie in order to win. He would have to, as one of my friends very succinctly put it, pull himself out of the cobwebs and explain to us that all this stuff is a lie. And I don't think that he wants to do that. I'm, I'm ha I would welcome, I would relish the opportunity to have him do that. Well, again, Mark Vincent has never told me he doesn't like or he, does, he disagrees with anything I've said on this podcast about him. Or anything he said to me, mm -hmm. he doesn't like that I've brought stuff up. Yeah. Because it makes him look bad. Right. He's never suggested it was not true or misreported in any way, shape, or form. You know why? Because it's not. Right. Well, also calling him a Hannibal Lecter type character doesn't That's not mean. not what I said. It doesn't mean that he's going to, you know, flay a cop Slow or down. bite someone's face off. First of off. all, that's, that, that's, that's not what I said. Well, you, you called his, the comment Hannibal Lecter-esque. I referred said. to that weird riddle thing he sent me as being Hannibal Lecter-esque. And that, hey, Clarice. I mean, it seemed like it was like a weird Hannibal Lecter kind of crazy guy uh, riddle thing that he sent me. That's what I was explaining. I in no way, shape, or form meant he was a serial killer. It seems it's only one, yeah. so Joe, you can't be serious in your opinion. It's a but jo I'm joking this let's, time. Let's repeat. But that's what I'm saying. That's that 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 was a real stretch. That was a real stretch yeah. to suggest that that in, in some way m was was referring to his character. I was referring to the message that he sent. Yeah. Very clear in that. Yeah. A, a very literal, specific text message that he sent to you with that you have a screenshot of and there's a date on it. So yeah. and I it would says, love to throw that up in the followers page. You all can see exactly what it said and what I said and why. Right. And what does it say? What, what did I bring into the woods that night? Was it a body or a picnic basket? He said if it was a body, they would have found it by now. Yeah. So it was a picnic basket. So he was there for some reason. That's been verified. I don't know. Well, the, the other thing with the article is that, in my opinion, it seemed that it was to very much spin it in the favor of the Wallingford PD because 
the Record Journal wants to keep their relationship with the Wallingford PD. And, and they should, and I completely understand that. And one of my very early conversations with Lauren Tacoris was along those lines. And I think we know there, there were other articles that were written by this same paper that didn't get published because of that same reason. Right, yes. And that is something that we are going to talk more in depth about when we do the episode on the photos. There was an article written for the Record Journal in 2014 about the Doreen Vincent case, which was pulled at the last second. And um, the reason is because of certain information. Right, right. They, they, they've they cut bait and, and, and run on this story, you know, multiple times. Um, at the end, I, I found it really interesting that the very end of that article was Donna and Debbie saying that this team, I'm going to toot our horn, has done more than the police have done in the past 31 years and that we have more information than anyone. But the last line was from Donna saying, you know, at the end of the day, the podcasters can do all that they want, but they can't solve the case and it's up to the police. I mean, the note that that landed on, I, I would disagree. I, I think everybody here listening knows what progress we've made, what information we've uncovered, and we're only going to continue to do so. Mm-hmm. We wanted to work in a collaborative fashion with the Wallingford Police and the Record Journal and even Mark Vincent. Mm-hmm. And none of them have been particularly cooperative. Right. Take that for what it is. Because I want people to remember, too, we did not go into this podcast particularly thinking anybody was guilty because the only information we had to go on was articles and online sites like the Charlie Project and the Doe Network and NamUs and all of those things. Um, That is the only information we had to go on in the beginning. And yeah, a lot of it seemed a little strange when we read it, but we didn't know for as far as we knew, she really did walk out of that house that night and just take off into the night. Um, When we called Mark Vincent, I was originally planning to call Mark Vincent myself. I chickened out and I asked <laughs> you to do it, which you did. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, look, that that is a, a very unnerving and unsettling thing to do. And, uh, you know, when I picked up the phone and called him, I was probably as nervous as you were feeling. Mm-hmm. And, and you were sitting there with me when when I actually yeah. made the initial call to Mark. Um, but that's, again, I mean, as the executive producer on this show, that literally was my one task. It was to get Mark on the phone, to try to get Mark to talk to us. I offered Mark on multiple occasions the opportunity to sit with us. I told Mark, I'm not going to ask you gotcha questions. If you've got information, it would help our investigation. We just want to find your daughter. And, um... I was told repeatedly that we can't help. Mm-hmm. And I, I think. don't know what that means. And we have tried to help in spite of of his lack of cooperation. Well, especially, I think it bears repeating that the first words out of his mouth to you, Joe, that night you talked to him in late December of 18 was, it's pedophile rings, it's pedophile rings, it's pedophile rings, it's pedophile rings. Which is interesting because in the first account the time-honored account she ran away so did she run away and run into the arms of a pedophile ring those are two different stories um and they seem to be changing 
I am curious as to why that is. Is it more truth coming out? Is it, you know, someone's getting older and losing their grip on what really happened? I I don't know. But those two things seem to me to be uh, mutually exclusive. That's a good point. Yeah, really very much so. Yeah, she ran. Well, I mean, we talked about and I know, Sarah, you've been receiving questions about the Haddon Clark thing, not to, Mm -hmm. you know, talk down to anybody who suggests it might still be Haddon Clark. But you would have to assume that Mark did all of these curious, strange things before Doreen went missing. And then he did all of these curious, strange things after Doreen went missing. And the way that she went missing was walking out of that house after a fight into the middle of nowhere, walking about seven miles to a bowling alley um, that she in a town that she had never been in before with no technology in the dark by herself without Mark going after her because we know when Mark notices something's wrong with Doreen or something's inappropriate with Doreen or Doreen's somewhere she shouldn't be, oh, he's, he's on, on her mm-hmm. tail. Yeah. So why didn't, if he saw her go missing... Why didn't he go after her? So she's walking down, you know, she walks all the way down Center Street in Wallingford, all down through the center of town, now down the hill to the bowling alley. And she just has the unfortunate circumstance of running into a serial killer who then kills her and then hides her body in a place that's never been found. Well, especially because Haddon Clark, uh, obviously years later, told the police about an incident in Wallingford with a young girl, got a ride up to Connecticut uh joy riding and and uh and i think fast food is pretty much what he got out of it and they they searched and they found nothing yeah so we felt pretty strongly based on that uh particular incident uh the timing of where his his next arrest was Mm -hmm. it just seemed extremely unlikely that this was haddon clark right it's like you know, I, we always say to people, okay, yes, we are agreeing with you that Haddon Clark was a serial killer and he probably had more victims than what he was convicted of. But tell me the thing that places him in Wallingford, Connecticut on or around June 15th of 1988 in the evening. Yeah, he might very well have picked up a young girl in Wallingford at a bowling alley and buried her at Castle Craig in Meriden. That could certainly be true. We never got a name. We never got a description. We never got a date. Um, Meanwhile, your little girl goes missing and you take the phone off of the wall. That's weird. Um, If you really believe he thought maybe she was in hands of a serial killer or a pedophile ring or what have you, wouldn't you be out there in your car looking for her? I'd be kicking doors in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'd find her. I'd just keep looking. It, 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 again, it, it's he said some curious things in our in our multiple exchanges, and they're often very inconsistent with things I know to be true based on documents we do have, um, and and then other times when he's told me stuff, uh, it it it's never it's never really added up, and and again everything that we've seen uh, from the outside. Mm, Suspicious, to well, say the least. I, I want to um, mention a question that one of our listeners, Barb, had. And she was asking about Haddon Clark and the claim of burying a girl at Castle Craig. She mentions, because we mentioned this in one of the early episodes, the Connecticut State Police believed Haddon Clark. 
but local authorities did not. Uh, don't you find it a little bit odd that the state and local police wouldn't work together just to search the area? But I want to address that question because the thing is, the Connecticut State Police were not investigating Doreen's case, so they don't know the details of it. The Wallingford Police knew enough that they knew that it made no sense for it to be Haddon Clark. I mean, that's why the two didn't agree. The Connecticut State Police knew that there was a girl named Doreen Vincent who went missing from Wallingford in June of 1988, and that's where their knowledge of that case stopped. And so when Haddon Clark comes along and says, oh yeah, I took a girl from a bowling alley in Wallingford, it's like, well, to them, that's just, there you go. Mm -hmm. um, but that's understand that that's the limit of the information that they had, that the Connecticut State Police had at the time. That's why they made that jump. Whereas local authorities knew a little bit more about what was going on. And that's why they dismissed it immediately. And I might be wrong on this, but I don't think I am. Let me just say, I believe they searched Castle Craig, which is, Joe, okay. describe Castle Craig uh, to everybody. It's enormous. It's uh, it's couple hundred acres uh, across the back end of Meriden going into Sellington. There's a mountain. There's a Castle Craig. It's a very wide-ranging area, and they did search it. I know that for a fact. But I, tell the listeners, what it was it a watch? We grew up in Meriden, but I'm not sure what it is. It's a watchtower? It's like a lookout tower. Yeah, it was and a watchtower back in back in the like day. Like the early 1900s. Yeah. I mean, you can see it if you're ever driving on the highway uh, through Meriden. It's, it literally right is at the peak right at the edge of the mountain right there if you go down 691 right. either direction you could see it uh, as you get past uh between like exits four and five yeah uh, you could see it up on top of the mountain right and if i'm not wrong it's pretty rocky right burying a body would be I, we're talking a body that hasn't been found again assuming Haddon clark killed her and buried her at this place the ground over there is very rocky and hard. I don't know if that's a place yeah, as in, where I would ever want to dig a hole yeah, of any sort. As in not soft dirt, like actual rock in the ground. Right. Not something you right. could p put easily, just quickly, overnight, put a shovel into. Correct. It's just not, that. Yes. That's, you wouldn't be able, you, you physically would not be able to do that. And even the actual tower of Castle Craig, it's not like... It's just surrounded by dirt. Like the ground has like sidewalk and, you know, like concrete over it and things like that. So it's not as if, you know, it's not the same as just like, you know, burying something in the woods or something like that. There is woods around there. But again, right, it, it's, it, it wouldn't even be a great, because first of all, part of it runs along 691. Um, I can tell you from ex life experience here, there are often people in those woods. Mm -hmm. That's a big place in Meriden where people go to partay, uh, mm -hmm. if you will. Don't say partay like that. Party. <laughs> and um, so, so, and then again with the ground, I just, that's, if you're burying a body in Meriden, that would not be prime choice number one. I can tell you that right now. So right. I'm not surprised that they came up empty there. And I'll tell you what, if you don't know anything about Meriden and you want to make up a location that's well-known, that would be believable, and you're Haddon Clark and you're sitting in a prison and you want an afternoon off, hey, uh, Castle Craig and Meriden, buried a body there. Let's get in the car and go. I'll yeah. show you right where it is. And he showed him right where it was, and it was empty. There was nothing there, and they dug quite a bit. Right. So there you go.
Okay. It's not Hatton. So I want to get to this next question, which Jessica already touched on a little bit. Have we had any further contact with the Wallingford police since the FOIA request? And the short answer to that is no, no, they haven't. Nope. No. That's why we had to wait for a hearing to be scheduled. And um, obviously, we that's not something we can talk about, really. They're obviously upset with us. That was never our intention. I did tell them if we didn't get moving on stuff sooner or later, that I would have to call them out on the podcast. They were well aware of that. Well, they also wanted us to stop looking into certain avenues. Correct. They most certainly did. They told and us I, to stop. And I did exactly what they asked. But I told them I could only wait so long on that. And then I would have to follow through and that I would call them out if they didn't come through. Right. That meeting was March 4th. And then don't forget, April 29th. It's in the paper now. I spoke to um, Sergeant Cifarelli there, who's now a lieutenant, and asked him about his brother's potential connection to Market Teen Challenge. And after that, all communication from the Wallingford Police Department stopped. That's why I decided to do a FOIA request. I wasn't doing a FOIA request to be difficult. I had connections at the Wallingford Police Department that stopped talking to me when I reached out with that particular question. So I just upped my game at that point. I want to just point a detail out to everybody sergeant cifarelli is who we formally used to call detective number three um it was actually the record journal article that called sergeant cifarelli and his brother who works at teen challenge out by name again the idea was to help and work collaboratively with these guys and you know if they needed more time they should have relayed that information it felt like we were getting blown off while we and we were trying to strike while the iron was hot Mm -hmm. and we've been working on this for months brought it to their attention and they were like well slow down these couple of things and let us look into some stuff and i gave them a timeline we exchanged phone numbers there were text messages obviously between a bunch of us we walked out of there feeling like hey we could really get this done and again as you said before jess and, and as you've said sarah we're not going to be the ones that are going to that are going to solve this case and put somebody behind bars that's the job for the police mm-hmm. and we have the utmost respect for the police but and i would say this about any profession do your job well, you yeah. do your job well and people won't call you out on it but when someone offers you assistance and you don't accept that assistance it's hard to have people keep their faith in you. It's well, as simple as that. Yeah, March 4th was our meeting. Um, Sergeant Cifarelli, now Lieutenant Cifarelli, wanted to go over the um, Jimmy Farnham audio, which he then reviewed He then reviewed on his own and told me he found absolutely nothing suspicious about it at all. So take that for what it's worth. You might find something suspicious about it. We certainly do. Um, then he told me he wanted to listen to the Laura West audio. You'll recall that... I told Laura West she was being recorded. She told me I was allowed to use her information, but that I was not allowed to use her voice on the podcast. Sergeant Cifarelli wanted me to come in. He wanted me to meet this to meet the second uh, police officer um, on the case. They wanted to sit with me and listen to Farnham versus West and compare and contrast. That opportunity never came up, despite my repeatedly requesting that it happen. Um, there were some back and forth. The, fo- the texts with uh, Cifarelli about his brother were April 29th, so almost two months later. And then I didn't file the FOIA request. I believe it was June 11th or June 12th. So we've given them time. And people have called me entitled um, on certain 
pages on Facebook. I feel like I'm entitled to that information, but look, I'm not doing this for my own health. I think it's Donna that's entitled to that information and Doreen really too. Mm -hmm. Well, again, not, nothing being done here is meant to disparage the police. It's certainly not information we're looking to publicly broadcast, but if they, and I, I brought this up in that article as well, and this was something that I, I, I found uh, upsetting and was part of the motivation in calling them out. It was clear that none of the three police officers who we met with had bothered to pick up the file and read through it. They didn't know basic information. They didn't know basic names. They seemed to be relying on us for more information. And they literally had the entire case file. They could have even kept it on their side of the table just to verify information. We couldn't even get that. So when you're wasting my time, and I could tell you this, I'm a very busy person. I run a couple of companies and, uh, I do a lot of things and I host my own podcasts. So when I take time out of my day to assist the police department in an open active investigation, can you give me the courtesy of even looking at the file and knowing what you're talking about? Mm -hmm. uh, just yeah. a little common courtesy and respect would have gone a long way for me with those guys. Well, I shouldn't have to sit there and correct you about factual information while we're sitting there. I imagine that was probably pretty embarrassing. Um, well, especially when they had all the information in a file that they could have easily opened up while we were there to verify info. Yeah, and remember too, guys, this, this file is about the disappearance of a child who remains missing. We're not there to just, you know, it's not murder mystery theater here. We're not just doing this for our own health. It's like, let's, let's go, let's go. It's been 31 years. It's time to get this ball rolling. You know, don't, don't make, don't question me on the details of the gun and when it was purchased. Don't say that, you know, we're going to kick a silly little stone over and solve the case. Don't laugh at our theories. Well, the funny part was just days later as you were, you were verifying information with Cifarelli. Cifarelli was literally using your timeline of events to feed information. Yeah. To he you. was literally, right. he, he was literally saying your information back to you. That's, that's I forgot about that's that. And it wasn't Thanks until you were like, are you just reciting my work back to me? Your work is very accurate and thorough. And as he, as he would, would tell you, your information and timeline is the most accurate thing they've seen on this case, that's even right. more so than that article that the record journal published, yep. um, which again, contains some inaccuracies, as far as the case and it's things that we've been able to disprove, right? We're, we're trying to get the proper information out there for people because from the get go, this has been the issue. It's, it's been a lack of information and even the information available is inaccurate. So, right. you know, again, we talked about the date that we believe the date is wrong. We didn't just guess and make that up. We've got eyewitnesses. We've got statements from people. We've got a timeline on a Wednesday that makes no sense. I think this is fits what they mean better, when they say that you yell. <laughs> fits much better because this is this is this is what drives me nuts. Every here's what people don't understand. I've been on what about eight of these episodes. This mm -hmm. consumes my life, twenty four seven. I mean, this is, this is all we work on in our spare time. And sometimes even when it's not our spare time, it's other time. Mm -hmm. I'm consumed by this case. I spent, you, you would have no idea how much time I spent on this case based on how often you've heard my big mouth on this show. Mm -hmm. 
right. the, the stuff that I'm doing behind the scenes isn't even necessarily for the podcast. It's for the case. And it's to find that little girl. And that's what, that's what makes me angry. Well, I think, too, I, I don't want to talk about the article too much and make it too personal, but it says that we relied very heavily on that 2001 article, which, Joe, I think you'll remember when we found that article in, <laughs> I, I think, that. mid-February, Joe laughed at me and he said, how does it feel that if you had had this article two months ago, <laughs> you would have you would have been, you know, well in front of the eight ball? And I said... I like that the article confirms a lot of what I'm able to dig up independently because A, it tells me I'm doing a good job without any formal training and B, it confirms what we know and it's someone else telling me what we know. But the article was important as well because like you just mentioned, the, the timing of her going missing, Jimmy Piscotti is right there in that article. And I, I found him, I called him. And he tells me he's working on his raspberry bushes on the weekend and hears that commotion and the hollering up at 1316. Well, then the details of that matter and they make sense as far as a timeline of days or dates, right? Yes. Be- because of the particular fruit here that we're talking about. This is, the, this is the kind of stuff I'm talking about where we can't share every detail of every piece of evidence that we we have found and maybe someday on the patreon page maybe we can get it all up there and you could thumb through it all yourself uh see what we see you know i'll tell you the other thing i don't comment often on the followers page i read everything because i'll tell you especially of late so many of you have drawn the same conclusions i drew months ago Based on information that's been trickling out over the last 15 episodes or so, this is stuff I've been working on since January, February. And I developed and and I offered my theory to the police. Chief Wright really liked it. I I don't mean to brag, but he was very impressed by my theory. Uh, I remember um, our buddy DeMeo said he'd never even thought about that before. It It was a solid theory. I've seen some of our followers... Right along the same. So, so you're you're reading and seeing and taking this info, and you're you're you're. It's taking you down the same road mm-hmm. because you know he, there's a lot of circumstantial evidence in this case. Right. It it doesn't take a big jump to follow the trail, and you see where that leads you to. Mm-hmm. And and I have found it remarkable, and I and I appreciate. You know, you could even throw a shout out to some of those people. I know, you know, you know Barb and uh, Nancy Nancy and, and Eileen. I mean, these people are wonderful. Joanna. Skip. Mm-hmm. Oh, Frank. Skip's amazing. Skip's one of the best. <laughs> but, but, but again, the more evidence that you get like we've got, and as you're getting more of what we've seen, most of you are drawing similar conclusions. And, and I've, I've literally believe I saw my actual exact theory out by somebody. You did. Uh, which yes. I thought was fascinating. That's li- uh, maybe I'll comment today and let the person know that's actually the theory I offered to the police. But somebody nailed it almost to a T. Well, but here's the other thing, Sarah. When you and I were at Guvea, there were two women who lived on the street. Right. They were there when Doreen went missing, and they're obviously older women now. They introduced them as this themselves as the sisters. I'm not going to say their last name, but I asked them what they knew when she went missing, and they said. You know, there were just there was talk that there was a little girl that moved into that house and she fought with her father all the time. And I said, well, wait a minute, fought with him all the time. She was there from the 5th to the 15th maximum. So what do you mean fought with him all the time? It was in the paper that Jimmy Piscotti heard them arguing once on that weekend. I'm going to say 
more likely than not, it's one ball of wax when she went missing. But it's not until you start looking at the details like that. I think the Wallingford police still believe she went missing on the 15th. Right. Well, I, and I believe Jimmy Piscotti said he had heard a lot of screaming up there in the prior weeks. He did. In the which, paper. which, again, mm-hmm. I mean, there must have been so much screaming that as he recalled it a couple weeks later, it seemed like it was a pretty regular thing and it had been going on for weeks, despite the fact she was probably there less than 10 days. Right. And she was in school, too, um, on the 8th and the 9th. I know that because um, Kate told us about the yearbook. So, mm-hmm. again, it's you, you got to sit with this. You got to steep yourself in it. You And maybe we are a little bit obsessed. I mean, I can't even tell you how many hours I've... Joe tells me to stop talking about it sometimes. And right now, this is speculating. We're speculating we a little speculating. bit here. Yes. But again, based on eyewitness accounts, yes. based on testimony from yet a second person who verified what that first person said. Right. And offered to share that information with the police. 